The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are about to enter a world of straight talk, compelling issues, and real solutions. Welcome to Power of Peace Radio with your host, Kit Cummings. Each week, we will tackle the issues that you've been talking about. We bring desperately needed hope and peace to our youth and our communities. Now, here is Kit Cummings. Good evening, everybody. Kit Cummings, the host of Power of Peace Radio. Uh, Very excited to come to you live tonight. Uh, Power of Peace Radio really delves into relevant issues affecting our communities. We uh, have thought leaders and change agents as our guests, and we talk real talk about real solutions and things that are going on today. Uh, First of all, I want to thank Speech, the founder and uh, frontman for the band Arrested Development. He was a guest on our show just a few weeks ago. He's got a new song that's coming out that um, we're featuring in our intro and with our outro. And so, Speech, uh, I know you're out there, man. Thank you so much for your friendship and also for just... uh, being so gracious to give us that uh, that song. I also want to thank everybody who came out and supported uh, Peace Behind the Wire, a nonviolent resolution, which is my latest release. And really, it's all about the Power Peace Project and where this this movement came from. It was an idea that that really became an experiment, which just developed into a program, and now it's morphed into a, a movement. And I've been chasing it for five years. And this past weekend, we released the book. We had a big event in Atlanta. It was very well attended, standing room only. We had a blast. And we had some, some wonderful dignitaries uh, from Atlanta, politics, elected officials, law enforcement, civic leaders, community leaders, uh, little media. And it was just a great event, a great party. But one of uh, the gentlemen that was on that uh, stage with me that night is going to be our guest tonight. But... Um, you can pick up Peace Behind the Wire, a nonviolent resolution at Amazon and uh, Apple iBooks and Barnes and & Noble. You can get it online. You can order the print version. But um, it's a very powerful story. It's a true story uh, that began with 12 men inside Georgia's most dangerous, violent maximum security prison. And them, along with myself, we came together during a gang war, which was tearing up the prison. And there had been... Uh, just stabbings almost every day, gang fights, gang wars, eventually four murders. It was a very, very tough environment. And 12 young men, black, white, and brown, Christian, Muslim, Jew, rival gangs, um, 17 to 30 years old, they signed a peace movement in honor of Dr. King's birthday, January 2011. And they signed a peace pledge committing to seven principles for 40 days. We met in small groups together. We discussed issues. Rivals sat together. And they began to tell their friends. And more and more guys began to come out of this prison until we were having this open call out with rival gangs and leaders. And peace came to that prison for a magical season. And that institution won prison of the year that year in the state of Georgia. And that's what birthed the Power Peace Project. And now it's, it's getting into schools and communities and churches and different places uh, around the country, you know, even overseas. Uh, the Power of Peace Project 
Seeds of peace have been sown in South Africa and Honduras and Ukraine and Mexico this fall, India. And i um, very, very excited. And uh, you can go and find out more about the Pop Teen Peace Movement at teenpeace.net. And get the book, download the app, take the 40-day challenge, get you a T-shirt, join the movement. And uh, lastly, I'm going to introduce, introduce my guest, but I had just a crazy thing happen. A guy called me. He was at the book release event this past week, and um, he introduced himself, and he's a race car driver. And so he does this thing. I didn't even know what it was. Spec E30 Racing. He races these BMWs, and uh, it's the National Auto Sports Association. He won the national championship this past week in California, two weeks ago. And so he came up and he said, man, I was at the event. I'm inspired. I've been following the movement. I'm so excited about helping kids. And so he said, man, I want to put the Power Peace emblem, which is a big P-O-P-P with a peace sign and a fist. And he said, I want to put it on the car. I want to wrap my car with it. And I'm sitting there like, really? The Power Peace is going to be on a race car. <laughs> now, it's not NASCAR yet. But Sandro Espinosa, I know you're out there, man. And uh, I'm so excited. In three weeks, he's going to be racing at Daytona. We're going to get a picture of that uh, pop logo on the top of this car as it races by at 140 miles an hour. This is road racing. but um, So anyway, I just want that out because it trips me out where this thing is going. Tonight's guest is a new friend, and I'm just, I was impressed the first time I met him. Um, the, the people at the event were blown away by what he had to say. And um, I'm going to go ahead and read his bio, let it speak for himself. Uh, Reverend David E. Jackson II is an ordained minister from Atlanta, Georgia. He is highly sought after as a preacher, teacher, and consultant throughout the United States, Africa, the Caribbean. Reverend Jackson is currently the 12th senior pastor-elect of Mount Sinai Baptist Church in the Old Fourth Ward community of Atlanta. That's in the King District, right downtown, the heart of the civil rights movement. Reverend Jackson is the youngest pastor elected in the 100-year history of the church and is scheduled to be installed fall of 2014, so obviously that's, that's already happened. Reverend Jackson has a passion to build working relationships for the kingdom advancement with a specific focus on education and training, development, rehabilitation. Um, professionally, Reverend Jackson is a police officer for the City of Atlanta Police Department, where he also serves as the youngest sworn volunteer chaplain. Also, he's the founder of D.E. Jackson Enterprises, an outreach and community development organization and the High Place Alliance, Inc., a nonprofit youth development organization. In the past, Reverend Jackson has worked in politics, the nonprofit sector, church administration. His previous work has afforded him extensive national and international travel, including over 15 nations. Now, listen to this part, too. Educationally, Reverend Jackson received his Bachelor of Arts in Africana Studies, um, research from Cornell University, magna cum laude, and his Master in Divinity with a concentration in church history from the Union Theological Seminary of New York, Columbia University, where he was a Union Honor Scholar and the recipient of the Maxwell Fellowship for Promise to Parish Ministry in 2007. He's currently a doctorate in ministry candidate at New York Theological Seminary, which now I know he's gotten that in Congregational Studies, and his research focuses on pastoral care and counseling in African-American congregations. Now, I'm going to take a breath, but man, that was I had to read that, uh, because if anybody has qualified to speak on the things we're going to talk about tonight, it is Dr. David E. Jackson. Now, thank you so much for being on the show Tell us how in the world, where'd you come from? How'd you get here? Why are you here tonight? Well, kids, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on with you tonight. And 
I'm just so honored to be a part of what you're doing. I think it's such important work, and it's an honor, as I said, to be a part. How did I end up at the Atlanta Police Department? This is a question I'm often asked when people hear my background. I'm a double Ivy Leaguer. I've earned doctorate. Um, I've traveled around the world. Quite simply, I ended up there because I needed to find a way to connect two worlds that were seemingly disconnected. I needed to connect uh, community, and for me, I was serving community through ministry uh, and through other outreach efforts. But I, I wanted to connect that to law enforcement because as I began to look at my own interactions with law enforcement, I found that uh, what I knew of law enforcement as a kid had shifted dramatically. I um, didn't know why, but I wanted to find out. And I also wanted to get involved uh, in a way where I could give back. And uh, one of the things I appreciate about my training at Cornell in, in Africana Studies, I was actually privileged to be trained by the founder of Africana Studies at Cornell, founded it in the 70s, Dr. James Turner. And he really instilled in us that it didn't matter what sector we would leave Cornell and work in. What mattered is the type of impact we made on our community because we believe strongly that we stood on the shoulders of those that came before us. And because of that, we could no longer be concerned with ourselves, but we had to be concerned about our entire community and those who we were called to serve. Um, there's a model in, in black studies that called, that's called I am because we are. So I wanted to find a meaningful way to, to give back to the community. Uh, someone suggested to me that I looked into law enforcement. I laughed because I was like, me, an officer? No way. And, <laughs> but this was the path that God had for me and took me on. And it's been a very rewarding experience being a part of the Atlanta Police Department and serving in law enforcement. Oh, man. Well, um, I'm, it's got to be people there listening and probably listening to your story. There's so many things that you not could have done that you can do that you will do. There's so many different uh, ways that you can go, and I think that it's such an important time in our nation and this conversation that's going on right now that everybody is uh, discussing. Um, it's there's so much fear, there's so much drama, there's so much anger. People are confused, and it's it's good people that are talking about real issues, and there are people that are have had enough and they're fed up, and there's others that are clueless. There's some are um, naive, some are in denial, some are just they're throwing their hands up, saying, "Man, I'm done with it." Whether it's the young generation or whether it's the the news, the media, uh, the protests. I mean, today we're dealing with a you know a, a bombing in Bangkok, which which was just as tragic. Um, it's a world gone mad. But here in our country, there's a lot of focus going on. Um, about the racial divide and especially cops and communities. And that's what I want to talk about tonight um, because really you do, you can speak to both sides of it. I, I met, um, I believe I met you, Dr. Jackson, before an event we had here uh, in Atlanta and it was called yes. Cops and Communities Bridging the Divide. And there's a, a movement in Atlanta, a coalition forming, which is called Movement Forward, Inc., and this is a uh, Dr. Mark, uh, Reverend Mark L. Hutchins uh, was my guest a couple weeks ago, and he started this Movement Forward uh, Coalition, and it's bringing together the faith community, law enforcement, um, citizens and community, civic leaders, trying to get people together and start a conversation that will lead to mutual respect, understanding, and hopefully reconciliation and healing. Because where there's no conversation and where I don't know you and I haven't walked with you and I haven't, I, my story is not your story, 
we fear what we don't know. And so we came together that day, and it was at the King Chapel, maybe the, the epicenter of the civil rights movement in a very sacred place. And it was amazing to, to see who came. It was Atlanta's faith community. There was a bunch of young brothers, Morehouse men that were there, and they were like an army seated together. There was law enforcement, you know, from uh, police chiefs and sheriffs and um, uh, elected officials. There was also a wounded community that came, families that had been affected by um, this, uh, this situation, these issues that are going on, not just in Ferguson and Baltimore, but, um, but really in neighborhoods and communities all around. This thing's been bubbling over. And um, I'll say this, and then I wanted just to, uh, for you to speak to this triangle. If you remember, there was a mother that shared a touching, just a heartbreaking story about a son being mistaken uh, and, and shot because they were, uh, they were pulling out and there were undercover officers there. And there seemed to be a, a conflict and a, I don't know, there was one thing led to another. There was a shooting. She lost her son. But then right after that, a police officer officer shared just so powerfully about, hey, I, I want to go home to my family. And he shared a, a gripping story about how he had to, to fight off two assailants, people that were attacking him as an officer, and he had to, you know, to, to use force and, and how that's necessary sometimes. And about that time, remember, we had a protesters uh, rush the stage and with signs, yes. and they were angry and they were hurting about their a uh, family member, brother who had been killed. And man, that was a very edgy moment. And uh, Reverend Hutchins handled it beautifully. But I'd just like to, for you to speak to that. What did it, was it like for you to, to see all those things coming together? I think the event at Morehouse College in King Chapel was a historic event. It was a move in the right direction to try to bridge communities who have historically been separated by recent events in our country recent police-involved shootings. And I think that all of the tension and dynamics we saw in the room was just representative of what's happening across the country. But what made our event very historic is that we were able to bring all of those dynamics, all of those demographics into one space and try to have a conversation uh, where all sides could be heard and to just hear the variety of stories that were shared, to hear the people begin to bring forth the deep pains and memories uh, from their personal experiences as it pertained to interaction with law enforcement or as a law enforcement professional interacting with a citizen who uh, unfortunately turned into a violent um, encounter. It was just a very eye-opening experience. And it really just showed us that we have to create spaces where we sit down and listen to one another. You know, if we if we continue to stay divided, if we continue to stand in our corners and holler and scream our points, then no one is being heard. You, you might be releasing and, and, and stating in your position or your belief or your experiences, but if there's not a space where we can listen to one another and not just listen, but say, I might not understand your experience, nor may I agree with your perspective, but I can at least respect the humanity in you and respect your perspective and, and try to uh, gain something from what you have offered. And, and in reciprocity, let me now share my perspective and give me that same courtesy back. And so I think that that was the purpose of that event. I think there was some moving in that direction. So I'm very excited that it happened and looking forward to other exchanges. I've 
I've had the opportunity to speak to a few people after that event, and I'm suggested bringing that down to a more microscopic level, meaning bringing it down to communities, bringing it to precincts, and allowing people to have similar dialogues um, in the communities where they live or in the communities that they work or have businesses or service of capacity such as, you know, worship, and um, have those same type of conversations. And I think if we begin to do that, we'll begin to make some movements in the right direction. Absolutely. And um, I, I do think it was, I mean, I'll never forget it. And it was a beginning. And I think that uh, the follow-up is key. Like, where do we go from here? Because a lot of times we'll have a big event, we being people, communities, cities, a big event. It gets a lot of news coverage. One of the things I liked about ours is we didn't allow media in. It wasn't a media event. It was a community event. And the media got to stand outside and got to, to see us come out and, and see watch us go in. And so it really wasn't done for media. It was done for that community. But we started a conversation, and now it's going to be a matter of where do we go from here. We're going to, in the next segment, we're going to take a break here in just a, a minute or two. But um, the divide that is developing, it seems as if the country was getting better um, after the, the civil rights movement. And then, you know, finally, after so long, there was a huge part of our country that was, um, I remember calling one of my buddies who happens to be a, a brother of color on the day that the president was elected because I said, man, I cannot imagine what you're feeling right now. And I just wanted, I was brought to tears. I said, I'm just moved because I cannot imagine what you're feeling as my friend. And I, and I want to, I want to feel you, you know. So I was just, I was moved through him for what had happened. And now, you know, almost seven, eight years later, we're seeing that, man, we still got a major problem. And Dr. King, his life and his death and the struggle allowed us to get to a nation where that election and that victory and then subsequent, uh, you know, an eight-year term could happen is, is an, uh, an amazing thing. Nobody in the 50s and 60s would have said that that could have happened so quickly. But now we find ourselves in a place where, man, it, it's not if, but where's the next one going to happen? You know, which is the next city? And we don't want it to be Atlanta. But this divide between law enforcement and communities and cops and civilians, it seems to be getting wider and deeper, or maybe that's just perception. And um, I want to talk about that. I was uh, speaking at an event uh, yesterday in LaGrange, day before yesterday. And it was one of these conversations, Dr. Jackson, that was in a small community of LaGrange because they're, they're losing young people. In these mm -hmm. little cities and suburbs, young people are dying, young people are going to prison, and they're fed up. And so we had a small version of what you saw at the King Chapel, and they had little um, documentary little, little interviews. And this one young lady, she said, I don't trust police officers. I never will. When they, I don't feel safe. I'm, I'm scared. And she had been shot in a gang-related, like a drive-by kind of a thing. And she still was saying, I'm afraid when I see officers. And that is such mm. a sentiment out there for a lot of people. And we've true. got very to true. start to talk about that. So we're going to go to a break. But I want to just kind of throw that out there. And then I want to jump right into it when we come back. So um, those listening, sit tight. We're coming back. Go and grab somebody. Bring them back to the conversation. And if you want to call in... Call in and talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be right back. It's your
your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Do you feel alone? Even when you're surrounded by others, do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, host April J. Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to help you find out who you are. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Are you happy in your life, or are you just settling? It's time to speak out, take control of your existence, and let your life speak. Bart Queen is the host of A Hero's Journey. His personal goal is to help you find your voice, use that voice, and live the life that you deserve to live. Do more, be more, and give more. Tune in to A Hero's Journey on the Voice America Empowerment Channel live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You owe it to yourself to tune in and make your voice count. Get ready to experience a more fulfilling lifestyle. Tune in to Direct Connect Empowerment with host Fee Mazanke. The show will feature guests who have changed their lives by using the Direct Connect coaching program or have worked with the same concepts that this program offers. By hearing how others have been transformed, you will be inspired to move forward. Direct Connect Empowerment with Fee Mazanke can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You're listening to Power of Peace Radio. To reach Kit Cummings or his guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Kit at kitcummings.com. Now back to Power of Peace Radio. Hey, everybody. Kit Cummings, Power of Peace Radio. Uh, as we come back, we're talking to Dr. David Jackson um, from Atlanta, and uh, I was thinking as we were coming back in, um, the Power of Peace Project. There's uh, the peace movement that developed in the, the 50s and the 60s, which led to the civil rights, which took us into, I was born right in the middle of the, that era, but when I got to be about 20, uh, 20 to 25 years old during those years, I read Dr. King's biography and it blew my mind, you know, uh, let the trumpet sound. And as a young man, I started to follow him and had no idea what a connection I was going to have to Dr. King later. And now it's such a big part of my my work, uh, Gandhi and King and Mandela and great peacemakers from around the world. But then when that uh, when so many of the, the peacemakers were, were gunned down, shot down, assassinated in the mid to late 60s, there was a new vibe in the country, and it was it was the power movement. It was Black Power and the Black Panthers, and it was it was a, a man. We're going to take it, and it was Malcolm before he changed. And so you have peace, and then it came into power, and then it was you know there was you know free love and the anti-war movement, and then the women's rights movement, and everything that that went into the 70s. That was such a, a change from the 60s. 
But then we got into the the me, you know, I mean, the 80s became a lot about, you know, the economy turned around and money and business and the 90s and everything blew up and then technology. We got a young generation now that that they don't even understand these things. I mean, they they a lot of them have no clue. King to them is like, you know, FDR to me. Um, I know who he is. I know a little bit about what he did, but there's no connection there. And so this young generation they think peace is weak or they don't understand that there's incredible power in nonviolence. And that's what the Power of Peace Project and the Power of Peace Radio is about, is to helping people that lack peace to find it. Whether it's a parent that's losing a kid, um, uh, uh, they've lost a son, or maybe it's the, the absent father, though he's still in the house, or it's in the inner city community. Kids are being lured away in the gangs because you know they got nobody and they, they, they don't fit in and they find family there. But these are the issues that we talk about. Um, as we went to break, we were starting to talk about the um, the, the young lady that, that shared at this event that I did on Saturday in LaGrange, which is a community outside of, uh, of Atlanta, about an hour outside of Atlanta. And she was saying, I don't trust officers, never will, and um, don't feel safe. And it just broke my heart to think about peace officers have now become what a lot of the, the community feels are a threat to them. And as an officer, Dr. Jackson, what would you say to that? I mean, is it getting worse? Is the divide growing wider? Or is it just the media? I mean, what do you see out there? I think it's a mixture of both, Kit, to be very honest. I think, um, as we were discussing earlier, perception is people's reality. And I think it's a mixture of what people are experiencing on the streets themselves. I think it's a lot of what we see in the media. Media, they're doing their job. Uh, but in them doing their job, they're also fueling some of the perceptions that people have. And I actually had a conversation with a citizen um, today and was just sharing uh, experiences that, you know, she had with law enforcement that after like three or four years after this incident has still left a very nasty, bitter taste in her mouth. So, you know, people have had their real experiences. And I think that I, that's why I'm very appreciative that I'm in the field that I'm in, the community affairs, because it helps me to really see how much law enforcement is not about just, you know, keeping the law intact and addressing people who violate the law, but it's really about taking care of people, taking care of communities, and letting them know that we're not just here to lock people up, but we are here also to build relationships. We are here also to to uh, to really try to shift, if you will, some of the negative perspectives and negative experiences that people have had with law enforcement. Because let's be honest, kid, there are some people who have had some very bad experiences with law enforcement. It's not just media hype. Um, I see them every day. It's amazing for me as I'm interacting with people in the community because that's what I do. I'm, my job is to interact with the community and to represent um, my zone to, to, to the community. And they are shocked that I'm friendly. In fact, my nickname is Officer Friendly. And the fact that my nickname is Officer Friendly, that's nice that they think I'm a friendly officer and it's a reference to a, a, a notion of law enforcement years ago. Uh, but it also speaks to the fact that most people do not assume that officers are there for them. And, I mean, in some ways, you can't blame them because of what's happened in recent um, media, recent news. But on the other hand, I think there is hope. So even though it might be getting worse, and even though there are some real experiences people have, there is hope. I think the hope comes from 
from officers who really want to build relationships with community. There are some excellent officers, not just myself, there are a ton of officers uh, around the country who are doing great things in their communities, are engaged with, uh, with their constituents, and want to really build great relationships. The fact of the matter is that we have to find ways to make that the norm and not a rarity. Absolutely. And I, I constantly remind myself and, um, and was telling a young person um, just today who was frustrated in the, the field that they happen to work in, man, everybody's just, nobody cares. And he was going on and on about how frustrating it was. Why do people in this industry act like this? And, and I said, man, this is a human thing. <laughs> You've got people in every type of uh, industry, job, you know, career. I mean, you've got, it's, it's, seems like the law enforcement's getting a lot of that is like bad cops, good cops. Well, man, you know what? You got really good guys flying jumbo jets and you got some guys that, that are so good. And, and you got ladies that are elected officials that are incredible and they're out to change the world. And you got some that aren't, they're corrupt. I mean, you've got yeah, wonderful judges and you've got judges that, that have problems. You've got some people that have alcohol addiction, but they do, they're doctors and they're, they're heart doctors and God bless them. I mean, but they got a, we're, we're just a, a mess, and but we also have this amazing beauty inside. Every one of us has light in us, and every one of us has some darkness. And so, you know, I think about that. But I also think about, and you can speak to this, I can't imagine right now being an officer, pulling somebody over, and that walk up to the car right now, and how people are like, man, you shouldn't be profiling and all this. And, you know, I'm like, hey, let's let's have a conversation. I mean, do any of us go through life and really don't, profile. I'm not just saying minorities, but we, we're built to make judgments. And our brain is always trying to judge what's around us, threats, opportunities, you know, fear. I mean, it's, it's, but I can't, I mean, speak to that. When, when an officer is just trying to do his or her job, trying to go home to a family, you pull a car over. What is, what is going through the mind right now for the typical officer with everything that's going on in our country when you're walking up on that car and the window's up and you don't know what's on the inside? It's a very fine line to walk. Is, is Well, I'll say this. For the average person, it would be probably very stressful. But for the way that I was trained, and I'm going to speak for how I was trained, we were trained to function under pressure. So uh, you feel the nervousness. You feel the uncertainty. You don't know what's there. You don't know how people are going to respond to you stopping them because of what's happening in the news and the media. People can't automatically assume that you're part of the regime of bad officers and that you are pulling them over for you know, faulty reasons or that you're going to in some way assault them. Um, or you could have a person who recognized that you pulled them over on something legitimate, um, and they know that they, you know, have broken the law in some way, and it's going to be a smooth transaction. But you don't know what's going to happen. So you approach the car, you know, with caution, but you also approach the car professionally, and I think that's the key. You know, you regardless of what's happening in the world right now, we are professionals. And it's our job to provide courteous, fair um, service to our citizens. We're to protect them and to serve. I think we forget that. And so I think for me, I know when a lot of the incidents started happening in the country um, and I was still answering calls and making traffic stops, 
yeah, there was definitely some caution. There was some elevated concern in my stops, but I still provided professional courteous service. And I would explain to people, I said, you're just stopping me for no reason. No, ma'am, no, sir. I was explaining to them, this is why I'm doing this, and this is why this is this. And I think just really uh, communicating and being professional and being courteous. I know I keep saying being professional, being courteous, because that mm-hmm. goes a long way. It really yeah. does. People can feel your sincerity, kid. People know when you're lying. People know when you're telling the truth. People know when you are sincere, and people know when you're just there for a paycheck. It comes out. And Mm so, I mean, I think that's my experience. I can't speak for other officers' experiences. Um, I've heard some stories with officers that, you know, they get very, uh, they're on alert, they're on the lawn, they are, you know, some are fearful because you don't know what's going to happen, what's on the other side of that window. But at the end of the day, as long as you know why you're doing what you're doing, you're providing professional courtesy service, and you're constantly, you know, utilizing the training, and that's a big part. I think training is very important. Um, There's no profession that you're in that training and recertification is not a part of, and I think that the more you embrace your training and continue to get trained, the more confident and, 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 and prepared you are or any citizen encounter you may have. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you've got on the other side, so I mean, I always try to try to put myself in the, the shoes of the other. And that's uh, so much of my work, and especially with the kids in these schools and communities, is you've got to learn to, to understand your opponent, your adversary, the one that doesn't look like you come from where you are. Seek first to understand and find common ground and walk them out with them before you judge. I mean, that's, that's right. so much just human nature and what you put out you get back but it also though we become what we see and we start to to vibe like people that we hang out with and i had a very interesting thing happen to me it wasn't a thing it was a, it was a process and i didn't even see it it was so slippery but i was spending lots of time in this uh, maximum security prison where the power peace project started i've been in hundreds of prison and and with thousands of inmates since um, but at this particular time, I was going up there twice a week and I was getting close to some guys that, um, you know, r- really, you know, these guys are there for a long, long time, have a lot of power on the inside. And I was relating to them so much that I started to see that my attitude toward law enforcement was changing and slowly it was beginning to shift. And, and I'm a guy from the suburbs in Atlanta, grew up here, and then happened to be a preacher for a lot of years. And I happened to, you know, have been what a lot of people would say was lived in, you know, grew up in privilege. We weren't rich, but we never lacked for anything. I mean, I knew I was going to school, it was a matter of where. And, but I started seeing, you know, the, the other side. I started looking at the officers different because I was identifying so much with uh, the inmates. And it was it was an interesting experience, <laughs> and so I had to catch myself. And then I, but I was seeing some guys that that were, you know, they they weren't they weren't trying to help anybody. But then there were some officers, correctional officers, that were just golden, and they mm-hmm. they they loved mm-hmm. those guys, man. They were trying to help those guys. Um, I wanted to shift into a um, here before you know, we got a few minutes for the break. But you you uh, used the term community policing. How important is community policing? And I'm assuming, I don't know, you're going to have to share with me. I'm thinking of the old days where a cop walked a beat and he went up on people's, you know, porches. And, you know, he knew or she knew the people in that community and they knew him or her. And I uh, have no idea if that's what the, <laughs> I want you to speak to, 
to how important is community policing? And then we're probably going to have a short little part to start it, and then we'll have to come back to it after the break. But what do you mean by that? Sure, exactly how you described it, Kip. Community policing is nothing new. In fact, I was privileged to be in a meeting uh, probably about a month ago with former Atlanta Police Chief Elgin Bell, and um, that's an amazing, he's the father of Chiefs. He's an amazing yes. guy. And we were having a riveting conversation about community policing not being anything new. It's not a new concept. It's exactly what you described. It is the officer, him or her, knowing their community, the people in the community, getting out of their patrol cars and walking, um, interacting with merchants, interacting with community leaders, interacting with the children, interacting with everybody. And if you have relationships with your community, if you have relationships with the people who make up the communities, then it makes your job much easier. I spend a lot of time just walking the zone. I'll park my car and I'll get out and I'll walk. I eat in the zone. I go to meetings in the zone. And I just carry on conversations, even this evening on my way home. Uh, so ladies were coming out of the nail shop where my office is located. And I just thought, Talking to them, it was drizzling, and I just carried on a conversation with them about the rain. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with police? It has everything to do with police. Yes, because sir. you never know how me having that interaction with, with these ladies will impact, one, their perception of law enforcement, and two, you never know how uh, life will come where I would have to interact with them again. It might be a crisis or a situation that happens, or they might know something that's happened, and because I have a relationship with them or I started an interaction with them, they feel more comfortable and more open to be a part of the law enforcement process. So we it's nothing new. And there is a big push to get back to that style of policing. I know we have a cops unit uh, in our department, but I, I appreciate my major and other uh, commanders in the department who are really encouraging people, the officers, that all officers are involved in community police. It's not just one unit. All the officers are community officers. Sure. And uh, I, I, I appreciate that philosophy and that drive um, to encourage all officers to be involved in community because we're here to serve the community. So community policing is so vital, it's so necessary because when officers have relationships with their community, then when crisis happens, it's much better to manage much better to manage because uh, a lot of the outcries that have happened around the country have come because communities don't have relationships or deep enough relationships with law enforcement where there is a level of trust to say, hey, there's been an incident, but we know this department. We know this zone. We know this precinct. We know the whatever they describe it as enough to know that they're going to get to the root of this and it's going to be fair. Mm. That's but as you're and that, that's, that's a serious statement, isn't it? That's what it really boils down to. Do we have deep enough relationships that in the event of a crisis, we are confident that the findings are going to be fair and accurate? That's what a lot of these outcries are about. What they're saying is we don't trust the police because we don't know them enough and they don't know us enough to believe that they're going to do the right thing in the event of a crisis. Man. Yeah, that is, um, in these conversations, I, I continue to go back to, to Dr. King saying that, that uh, we fear each, uh, each other because we don't know each other. And we don't know each exactly. other because we don't communicate. 
And when we communicate and get close enough, judgment and hate happen at a distance. When I get close enough to see you and to understand your journey, going back to Cleveland uh, this, this coming weekend to graduate about 100 juvenile felons, juvenile inmates through our Power of Peace project, 40 Days of Peace. And they're sitting down, 17-year-old gang members coming out of Cleveland and Cincinnati. They're sitting down. They've done 40 days sitting down together. And violence is dropping because, man, you sit down with a guy once a week and you find out you got a grandmother too. <laughs> you know, you come from that neighborhood. It's the same as mine. It's just, why am I going to hate you because you're Cincinnati and I'm Cleveland? And I think it's the same with communities and officers. Officers are just trying to go home to their family, but so are the community members. It's their That's their neighborhood. And so... I love, you know, officer friendly. I mean, that's just, that's killer right there. We're going to come, we're going to go to a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what faith, the faith community, their responsibility, our responsibility and solutions to this problem. So stick with us. Come right back. Power Peace Radio. Dr. David Jackson. Kip Cunningham. And this goes out to It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Should there be more to your life? Do you need a change? Transformation for Success with Dr. Barbara Young will provide empowering commentary each week to encourage you. She will interview successful personalities from movies, television, business, technology, health, and academia. All of them have amazing stories resulting in transformed lives. You will learn how to discover real happiness, financial success, and fulfillment to live your highest purpose. Join her on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What makes you the best you can be? Is it money? Is it success? Maybe it's love, a good career, home, and family. Could it be a bit of all of these things? Be the best you can be with Dr. Linda Sanicola, along with her featured guests, will bring you the tools that could be the answer to the questions you've been asking. You'll get to the root of some of the problems that have been keeping you from being the best you can be and tackle them head on. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You're listening to Power of Peace Radio. To reach Kit Cummings or his guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Kit at kitcummings.com. Now back to Power of Peace Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Power Peace Radio with your host, Kit Cummings. I have Dr. David Jackson, um, wears many hats here in Atlanta, a true community leader. 
And we're, ta- we're talking about solutions uh, to the issues that are going on um, in our country right now, in our communities. And I wanted to, to delve into the faith community. And um, one of the things that I'm fascinated with is, is not just your Ivy League training and your education, but also your, your role in community affairs with law enforcement. We were talking about getting back to community policing and, and really just walking your zone and knowing your, your people, you know, that you're to protect and serve and the community needs to trust. And I think trust has been broken or, well, no, it hasn't. I think in a lot of ways it hasn't ever been there. Um, in the lives of the people that have, uh, especially young people, they're, they're not growing up learning to respect and trust uh, those that, that wear the blue or wear the, the black or whatever, you know, wherever their communities are that are to protect and serve. And, and so the young people have to get in the conversation, which is very challenging. The faith community, and I need you to, to correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong um, about my perception about the faith community, um, one of the things, uh, you know, when Dr. King was starting to develop the momentum in the late 50s, early 60s, he called on pastors, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail, and he was calling people out. And when they started, you know, what, what became that movement, he called 50 pastors from around the nation, and, and he was engaging people of faith, men and women of faith, to step up and to serve and lead. And that was one of the biggest battles I know at, at certain points along with this, in the struggle that he had was to try to get, uh, you know, the faith community to step up, but especially the, the pastors and the reverends and the preachers, and the ministers. And I know there's so many that are in the battle, rolling up their sleeves, getting dirty, right down, serving in the community. Matthew 25, you know, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was sick, when I was a prisoner, and when I was a naked stranger, you came and you served me. And um, but my perception is there's a whole lot of pastors out there in congregations that are just, man, they ain't even trying to get involved. And they're just kind of, uh, they're sitting back and maybe preaching to the converted on Sundays. And um, I know that is not a general, uh, don't, don't, I mean, I'm painting too broad a, you know, stroke there. But um, tell me if, if you think that that's the case. And um, tell me as a, a law enforcement and a pastor, what does that look like? And how can the faith community help? Wow. Being a pastor and a police officer is interesting. Another place that there's been a divide, people constantly ask me, how can, how do you manage both? And they see it as a great disconnect. There is no connection for most people, but the reality is there's a great connection because um, the reality is both are serving people. Both are called to protect. And if you really listen to the language of law enforcement, it's very um, pastoral. Like, we don't work shifts, we work watches. We're sheepdogs. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's, we are, we are the shield between good and evil. There's a lot of spiritual language in law enforcement. Um, and I see my job in law enforcement as a spiritual one. I'm not just naturally out here on the streets. There's also a spiritual component to what I do. But um, I think I, I appreciate Dr. King's um, posture when he started this movement here of really calling together the bedrocks of black communities, which were at that time were pastors. And and still today in some regards are still pastors. Um, I think pastors as bedrocks in the community has shifted as demographics have shifted and as um, the millennial generation are really calling to task organized traditional religion. 
So um, the influence that pastors had in the 60s might not be as much as today, but that could be changed by pastors and faith leaders getting back engaged in what matters to society. See, I think that's what the millennials are saying. You all are not addressing our issues, our concerns, what matters to us. And what's happening, what's happening between um, certain communities and law enforcement is an issue that concerns not just millennials, but most people in America. So for a faith leader to be able to speak intelligently and relevantly to these issues and help them to understand where is God in this? Where is, where is faith in this? How does faith help us to get through that? I think will make the church more relevant in ways that we can even imagine. So uh, I am just honored and blessed and humbled to be able to say in the crucible of that. And I think that it illustrates um, how we bridge gaps. You need people that have, can sit on both sides of, of two areas that's normally been divided and bridge the gap. Uh, I, I love the scripture in, in Isaiah where, where, where the prophet is saying that we are the breaches of the gaps. Mm-hmm. He didn't say God was the breach. He said we are. We are, the, we are the restorers of the breach. And I think more pastors and faith leaders have to see themselves as restorers of breaches and, and, and move away from this nebulous spiritual uh, God's going to fix it kind of theology, and God is going to fix it, but God's going to fix it through us. Uh, we are God's hands and feet and mouth of the earth. And when we get back engaged in real community work, and um, now don't get me wrong, uh, there are a lot of pastors and faith leaders who are in the trenches, on the Absolutely. ground, doing the work. So I in no way take away from them. No many of them connected to many of them in different ways. I am also in the churches, not just because I'm in law enforcement, but as a pastor, we are feeding the hunger. We are clothing the naked. We are providing for people. I walk my streets. The people in my community knows me. My church is in the middle of a very impoverished community, and the people know me because I don't just get in my car and drive to church and leave. I interact with my community, just like I do in law enforcement. Right. So I don't take away from those that are doing the work, but I think the, the vast majority let me tell you, let me just speak very frankly. I can speak a little bit more frankly about ministry than I can about law enforcement because there's just some things that I have to be governed by um, when I speak about law enforcement. But as a pastor, I think a lot of pastors and a lot of faith leaders think that they have their pulse on the reality of their people, and they don't. They have their finger on the pulse of what used to be. Mm. Let me break that apart. A lot of pastors, particularly pastors of color and pastors who serve communities of color or communities that are oppressed in some way, at some point did have their finger on what was happening because they were closer to the people. They were more engaged in the day-to-day struggles. They were more, more in touch with their own life struggles. But there's something about success in ministry that can remove you from the reality of the people that you serve. But a lot of people are under an illusion. They believe that they still know, but you don't know anymore. So you're right. preaching out of what you knew about the struggle 10 years ago, and that struggle has changed. Right. And so a lot of pastors are far removed. They're disconnected from the realities of their people. And so they're preaching a gospel. They're preaching a message. They're preaching a belief that they think is spot on relevant and is so far away from where the people are. And so pastors have to get back 
in touch with the people that they serve. And you might say, I know, I'm in touch with my people. Are you really? Are you really? Because your people in your congregations can be going through all sorts of things, police brutality, homelessness, uh, domestic violence, drug addiction, right under your nose, and you have no idea because you think that you know when you don't know. The best way to come into information, kid, and you know this, is to start with the premise that you don't know. That's right. <laughs> you know. When you come right. to the table thinking you know everything, that you have already set yourself out from information, knowledge. Yep. And you know what? That connects to law enforcement, too, and community policing. When I approach people, I do not approach people like I know. I am very humble. I listen to what they have to say. And a lot of times, majority of the times, I gain information. I gain insight that I would not have gotten if I had come to that interaction as a know-it-all. That is so good. So I think pastors, mm. faith leaders have to have the same posture. I love it, man. And that's, I mean, if I'm out there listening to this and I'm listening to, to, to you and the work you're doing, but not just that, about how you're going about doing it, it's got to give somebody hope. It's got to give, it's got to help. It's going to bring people together and, and start looking. I want people to look at the, the guy and say, I do not know unless you let me close enough. I love to close with a story each time, and I try to, to this amazing journey has taken me. I was in a prison in Ohio, and this was several years ago. And a guy walked up to me, and, and I'd heard his nickname. His nickname was Bullethead. And these guys inside, they got crazy nicknames. But I was like, man, why are you called Bullethead? And, of course, I didn't notice that he had this huge tattoo on his forehead that looked like a bullet hole. So, I mean, it's kind of you know pretty obvious he was called Bullethead. And so I started getting to know him. Now, if I just sized him up and looked at him, looked at his ink, he was obviously, he happened to be a white inmate, and he had tattoos that um, weren't just white, but he was, um, had been in the white supremacist in a gang on the inside for uh, a long time. And that's how he grew up. And you know that that's a very, um, can be a very hate-filled, prejudiced, racist, you know, just a, just everything that is the, the problem with what's going on on both sides. But anyway, he started to tell a story. I said, man, what, what, where are you at? And he said, well, now I mediate between uh, rival gangs, white and black, and I'm, I'm brought in. And I said, really? How did that happen? And he told me what brought him to prison. And, and he had, um, I don't have time to go into all the details, but he ended up getting this high-speed chase in his car. And he wrecked his car into an oak tree and just wrapped himself around this car, I mean, around this tree. And the, the car was burning. And here is a white supremacist gang member you know that was laying in this car wrapped mangled up the car's on fire he can't get out and in reaches a black hand now he's got a choice to make am i going to grab that hand you know that's reaching in to save me and of course he grabbed it and this guy pulled him out and got him out of the car before he burned to death and he looked at this man this black officer and um, his, his name happened to be Officer Gay. He told me, that I, I'll never forget him. And I looked at him and said, man, why did you come down here and, uh, and reach in and pull me out? And he pointed up to a bunch of white officers on the street. And he said, because those guys were going to let you burn. And that changed his life because it changed his opinion about people of color and not just a black man, but a black officer. And uh, it was so powerful. And anyone can change. We got to get close enough to see the other walk a mile with the other and that means parents that don't understand your teens maybe you got to figure out what it's like to be 13 (laughs) 
what it's like for those of us that are that are white try to understand what it's like coming from this community for those that are black try to understand what it means to be white or to be brown or be rich or to be poor for suburbs inner city christian muslim jew if we could try to understand one another power peace project is about finding god inside of people and bringing people together dr jackson i'm honored you were awesome we got to do this again appreciate you praying for you just say goodbye because we got just one word. Go ahead. Goodbye. Keep hope <laughs> and let's keep building. Hope is the new dope. Say it. Hope is the new dope. True All right. God bless you, man. Power Peace Radio. Tune in Monday nights at 8. Love you guys. See you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Power of Peace Radio. We hope you've become inspired to make a change in your world. Spread the word and make sure to tune in to our next show. We're live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment Channel. Be the change you wish to see. And remember, hope is the new dope. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.